Well, thank you so much, Derek, for joining me today. This has been a, a long time coming and, and a true honor to really discuss your journey, Tree's journey. And we'll get into Veritree a little bit as well. Before we started recording, you mentioned you're about to cross the 100 million tree threshold for, for Tree. So obviously, huge congratulations to that. And, and that's kind of where I want to start is really just Tree, and, and it's kind of grown to this really one of the, I would say one of the most, the biggest, one of the biggest impacts brands sort of in our industry, as you look at e-commerce and, you know, sustainable fashion and, and sort of this, this model of, you know, purchasing apparel for it to sort of impact the world in a lot of different ways downstream um, after the purchase. Talk about the origins of Tentry and just the the ideation of it. And, and, and we'll start there, man, and get into a lot of good stuff. Yeah, you bet. And thanks for having me, Grant. Uh, yeah, long time coming. Yeah, you know, I, I guess the origin of Tentry, it, it kind of goes back to when I was in high school. Uh, my brother and I, we had a tree planting company. It was sort of our first real job. And the idea behind this tree planting company we had was, let's plant trees and let's sell carbon offsets. Uh, you know, we, we grew up in this uh, in the prairies in Canada, resource economy. And there was a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety around this future that was sort of unknown at the time around what carbon offsetting would look like. Is it going to be cap and trade? What's that going to be? And so as a result, you were seeing a lot of organizations that were concerned about, you know, the future price and what that would do to impact their business. And so my brother and I not fully really knowing much about that being 15, 16 years old, whatever we were thought, you know, maybe there's a solution here, uh, a business opportunity to support some of these companies that are not going to be able to meet their commitments or, you know, need a sustainable supply of offsets. And again, not really knowing much about it. We thought, well, trees seem like a good idea because, you know, trees, take CO2 out of the air. And what, what, I mean, year, what year was this? This would have been probably 2007, okay. 2006, 2007, something like that. And, and so we came up with this idea of take some farmlands that you can't really grow a whole heck of a lot and plant a tree farm on it. And those trees will create a long-term supply of offsets that will be significantly less expensive than, you know, alternative supplies of offsets. And, and so we were fortunate. We, we had a number of businesses that chose to take a, take a chance on us. And we, we bought 640 acres of land. We planted 150,000 trees and it sort of served as like our, you know, call it summer, but also through the year job for the next four or five years of our lives. It was, it was this really incredible experience. It ultimately, the business model wasn't viable because it was too, it was premature for sort of where the carbon markets were going, but it opened our eyes to the impact that tree planting could have both on the environment, particularly in this small little 640 acre plot, but also globally, we got connected with this network of organizations that were using tree planting to provide jobs and food security and poverty alleviation and really incredible stuff. And so we kind of left that experience that call it sort of high school uh, business and w knew we wanted to create something that allowed us to plant trees. And so it was my brother and our, and our other partner, Dave, who kind of came up with this idea of saying, well, what if we, what if we created a brand and a product around that brand that allowed us to plant trees? And at the end of the day, we were, we were really agnostic as to what that product was. But the idea was pretty simple is that the, the 
profit from that product would allow us to plant as many trees as we possibly could. And, you know, it, it turned out that, you know, we came up with this idea of creating a t-shirt. So we bought some American Apparel t-shirts, we put a logo on it, we found it, we figured out that we could, you know, support the the funding of 10 trees through that planting or through the sale of that t-shirt. And we, we started selling them. And we were really fortunate that you know, that, that idea and that model and the tangibility of selling a product and, and planting trees really took off. And, you know, for us, it's, it's been a wild journey over the last decade here of just seeing that grow, seeing people, you know, connected to the product and the impact that that product represents. Like you mentioned at the beginning, this year, our 10th year in business, we'll plant our 100 millionth tree, which is a pretty uh, pretty cool milestone for us. Amazing. I want to also paint the picture of most of this early on, I think you said up till the seventh year mark, that you had bootstrapped the entire thing, right? And you had built, you know, whether it's the e-commerce store, the supply chain, right? All these all these attributes that go into to, to building a multi-million revenue sort of e-commerce store. I guess talk about the early stages of, of the first, just the first seven years, right? And doing it, not obviously all on your own because you, now you have employees and things like that as you went along the way. But in those first three years, what was it like just, just building out the infrastructure of, because I, I want people to understand that they can also do this, right? You don't need, you know, a million dollars, $10 million of venture capital early on to build out something incredible and profitable and impactful at the same time. So maybe walk mm-hmm. us through like just, just the journey of, of building out maybe the first three years from maybe a, a tech stack point of view and maybe the hurdles of getting the store at, at scale a little bit. For sure. I mean, you, you mentioned like, you know, and you said it right. Like it, it wasn't all to do with me. It's largely probably <laughs> sure. in, in spite of me most of the time. <laughs> You know, as far as you, you said it right, like we, we've been fortunate to build this business largely profitably since the get-go. And I think it came from a place of, we didn't realize until we were sort of five, six, seven years into the business that that was more the exception than the rule. Right, right. Nobody told us when we started Tentry <laughs> that you're just supposed to lose a bunch of money the whole time <laughs> and raise a ton of capital. And you know, I, I think particularly now with the changing sort of, you know, market dynamics where investors are also running away at from growth in mm-hmm. in pursuit of cash flow and things like that. I think you're seeing a lot of this sort of artificial market that we've created because of effectively free capital mm-hmm. is falling apart. And you're seeing a lot of the a lot of the businesses in our space, whether that be sort of the sustainability-minded businesses, or it be the sort of consumer-facing brands, particularly the D2C that you talked about, are are no longer able to go back to the well. This idea right, of right. I'm going to raise $10 million just to put it into Facebook is kind of falling apart with the changes to iOS and the changes to all these different things out there. So, I mean, for us, our approach as a business has always been to operate profitably. And really, when when we did explore bringing in a little bit of outside capital, it was it was for specific things. It was not to you know support the operations of the business so much as it was to invest in the fundamental things that we just hadn't necessarily done. Uh, better ERP system, better auditing, better tech stack, better uh, website and rebranding, and then also the investment in 
you know, what's what's since been spun out as a separate business, which is Veritree. You know, I think your your question was like, what what did we do differently? I I wouldn't say it really comes down to us doing anything that dramatically different. I think what it comes down to is being disciplined as a founder around what it actually takes to to build a truly sustainable business. And I don't just mean sustainable from the standpoint of like ESG, I mean sustainable yep. from the revenue. standpoint of yep. revenue, profit, mm-hmm. you know, cash flow positive. Because with this sort of artificial environment that's been created because of like low cost capital, it's actually led to this self-fulfilling call it cycle where you know, venture capital raises a bunch of money. Venture capital needs to deploy it. They deploy it. They make big, splashy PR uh, announcements around how this company or that company raised all this money. And then that company then needs to deploy it in the next 18 to 24 months so that they can justify their next raise at a higher valuation. And at the end of the day, that is just fundamentally a bit of a disjointed way to build most businesses. If you, some businesses, absolutely. Like if you're in giant land grab scenario, you're a Facebook, you're, you know, Airbnb, Airbnb, it's it's a different approach. But when you're talking about consumer brands, when you're talking about, frankly, the vast majority of companies, they do not need to, to get on that sort of merry-go-round. And so I, I think for us, it really just came back to, we focused on fundamentals. We focused on what do we need to have as a bottom line to reinvest in the business in order to support next year's growth. And we worked our impact, the tree planting, everything mm-hmm. like that into mm-hmm. the cost of the product. For mm-hmm. us. It was is the same as the organic cotton threats to us was the planting of the trees. And so really for us, we also got very diligent about what it would take to acquire customers. And we didn't get, we weren't sort of looking to other businesses and their splashy press releases mm. and and getting anxiety about why aren't we growing <laughs> fast enough? Because I think, you know, it's one thing to gr- go fast. It's another thing to go far. And we're fortunate that I think we've, we've not only been able to go pretty darn fast, I'd say, but we've actually been able to maintain it and continue that growth and that momentum, which you're seeing a lot of people not be able to do in the last couple of years. I want to talk a little bit about the apparel industry in general, right? And we can we could say fashion, apparel, whatever we want to call it, right? It's a, it's a massive global business that has historically been, you know, not so friendly to the earth, right? And has really been an extractive industry. Um, and, and I love seeing brands really take an effort to be like, okay, how can we actually improve these dynamics in this massive industry? Talk a little bit about the effort that goes into just like looking at apparel and trade. How can we truly be sustainable, ethical from the materials, you know, for the supply chain as you scale, right? Those, do those problems become harder, um, become easier? Like just, just talk about the industry itself and, and how to make it, you know, truly sustainable and ethical. For sure. It's, it's hard. I mean, you, you asked, does it get easier or harder the bigger you get? I would say some problems get easier, some problems get harder. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it, it's still just a very challenging thing to do to really push a industry towards change, which it's already, a lot of it's already happening. But it goes back to when we started Tentry, which again, we, we were agnostic as to the product. It didn't have to be apparel. It could have been anything. The idea was that we create a product and a brand around that that allows us to plant trees. What I believe we recognized was that us attaching ourselves to apparel was frankly a fundamental part of our trajectory because apparel truly is this 
business, this product, whether fashion apparel you, you talked about, that has cultural resonance. And you've seen it a lot in the last decade where the consumers transition from this idea of, frankly, just buying product to actually supporting the product that fits their values. And and apparel, like something you wear on your body, is one of the purest representations of that from my perspective. For us, it has been an it has been a journey. And I think we the way we look at it is that first we sort of embrace this fallibility that people have challenged us on before and and you know also rightfully so that you know you, you say you're doing all this good by planting trees, but what if the vehicle to get those trees in the ground, which are vehicles apparel, is actually creating a negative impact? And the reality is, is that no matter how sustainable, I'm doing sort of air quotes around that, right, right. We, we get, we're still having some negative impact. Sure. There, sure. There's, still, there's still fibers, there's still you know manufacturing, all these sorts of things. So there's still some sort of negative impact on the planet that's being created. So our approach has been to say, we exist to plant trees and we connect the consumer at the start of that journey with the trees at the end of that journey. And if that vehicle right now is, is apparel, we want to make sure that that apparel doesn't just have less impact, negative impact, it has no negative impact. So hmm. that's sort of the challenge we put to our team. And we said, okay, what would that take? So for us, it really came down to first understanding the footprint of that product yeah. and then reducing the footprint of that product through, you know, within the supply chain. So that means things like, you know, better materials, uh, organic cotton or recycled cotton, fair trade, all these sorts of things versus conventional. And in addition, we've done a ton of work around things like insetting, which is, you know, planting trees in the cotton fields that we're working with, or, you know, bringing our factories to closer proximity to one another. So there's less movement of materials. So it's really about, okay, understanding the footprint of your product and reducing it. And then no matter what, you still end up with some negative. There's still something that's left over. And so for us, what we do, and it's, it's not perfect by any stretch, but it's a step, I believe, in the right direction, is that we measure our scope one, two, and three emissions for that product. So effectively, the, all the carbon footprint of that product from the seed to the consumer to whatever the end of life is of that, and we offset it every single year. And then finally, it kind of comes down to that last point, which is that end of life of the product. And we're trying to create yeah. as many vehicles as we can for that. So we're creating take back programs, resale programs. And we're also, we've also mandated for our product team that within the next five years, every one of our products should either be compost, fully compostable or fully recyclable. There's so many difficulties there. And I think that you know, obviously just the ability to even measure, you know, your carbon emissions as a company I don't know if it's fairly new, but it seems like the technology has, you know, maybe the last five years or so really enabled that where, you know, every business can sort of assess their, their supply chain, their manufacturing, their production, whatever it may be, and really get just, you know, a dashboard view of, you know, of their impact, whether positive, negative, whatever it may be, but at least it, it, it allows for brands to then make an educated decision on how to become you know, a better company, a better brand, just, just from having like better tools, right. Better technology. Have, have you seen that? Yeah. You know, they, I, I'm of two minds on it. I, I think you made the, the right point at the end there, which is that 
This, it allows you to make educated decisions. At the end of the day, and, and not a lot of people don't really talk about this, but a lot of this like footprinting analysis, a lot of mm-hmm. the work that's being done in sort of like technology to determine the carbon footprint of X or Y is all bullshit. Mm-hmm. Especially when you get into scope three emissions, like it's all the law of averages and you know it's averages on top of averages on yep. top of averages. And so the reality is, and again, nobody really talks about this is that that number that's at the that you you end up <laughs> making your decisions off of is a, there, there's a a high probability that that number is very off. Now the hope is is that when you do that a thousand times, some might be high, some might be low, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, it gives you to your point this ability to make educated decisions and and it's directional. And then yeah. if you start with some form of measurement and you hope that that measurement continues to improve year after year, but it also is based off sort of similar principles each year and you continue to make better decisions then you should see that measurement continue to go in a way that at the very least you can make better decisions off of. But, you know, I think this is one of the problems that's facing a lot of the sort of ESG and sustainability narrative is that a lot of it is lacking a level of transparency and verification and frankly, yep. just like good data. Yep. There's a lot of people that are that are talking about AI. There's a lot of people. And, and just the reality with a lot of this stuff is like we don't necessarily have the data models or the data sets yet to really do the kind of things that, that we're you know, we are selling the future and I get that, especially in the startup space. And I mean, I've done it before too, but I think there's, there's definitely in all this stuff, a a need for recognition that like, we're not where we want to be, but the investment today needs to be made in order to get there. I think it's a decent segue opportunity for Veritree, you know, speaking of, of technology and just, you know, the idea of, of being transparent, you know, being verifiable, whether it's the carbon markets with offsets, whether it's just planting trees at a fundamental level and say, Hey, this is, has been planted here. It is here's sort of the, the, the benefits of it being here. What kind of tree is it? Whatever it may be, right. Talk us just through the advent of, of Veritree and what it was intended to do first and maybe what it's moving into now. So we started the build of Veritree about three years ago and it was, it was frankly a recognition internally that we were spending millions of dollars every year on the planting of trees. And we didn't necessarily feel like we were getting the level of real-time data verification, auditing, and, and kind of manageability, I don't know if that's a word, that we, that we felt like we needed. And so we were, we were approaching this from the standpoint of, okay, 10 trees growing, Tentry's investments in restoration are growing. And we also found that we were starting to see more and more people step into this space of buy X, plan Y. And we had a number of our partners approach us and say, we have a thousand business partners and, you know, six or 700 of them came to us from Tentry. And because we were, we were, you know, support if people reached out to us, we would pass them along to some some people that we felt were really doing great work. And I think our realization was that if if we weren't feeling like we were getting the level of transparency we needed, and we were also building like creating a bigger industry just through the the communications and the success of our business, we really needed to have a more solid footing. And so it was about three years ago we started investing in 
a technology that in the building of a technology that would allow us to collect data directly from the ground, manage that data, put it through different verification workflows, and then also allow us to continue to monitor that inflow and, and, and attach it directly to the projects we're supporting, and then effectively turn each tree into an inventory item. So we, we, through the collection of the data from the ground and the verification workflows, we were able to basically turn each tree into kind of what we called an inventory item or a, or a tree token. And th this system effectively became a tree RP. So it allowed us to treat each tree like an inventory item, make sure that it wasn't double counted, make sure that it wasn't allocated to multiple partners that, you know, cause there's this running joke in tree planting that one tree gets sold, you know, a million yeah, times. And, right, right, right. And, and, and then in addition to that, once those trees are, are, you know, kind of run through this workflow, we were then able to continue to monitor them in an ongoing basis. And so we, we built this for ourselves over the last kind of two years, and it really wasn't in the plan to, roll this out as to a, into a separate business, but it was about seven or eight months ago where we started having a number of organizations sort of banging on our door to say, we want to plant trees with you and we want to leverage the technology that you've built. And so it was the first partner, one of the first partners was Samsung. And from there, it's kind of been a bit of uh, just a snowball of other businesses that have approached us and said, we really want to invest in restoration. We want to invest in verifiable, auditable restoration, and we want to be a part of what you're building. And so it's been really humbling and, and we've been really fortunate. But at the end of the day, at its core, Veritree was built to bring more verification, more transparency and auditability to the global reforestation space. And so it started as an in-house product, essentially, right? Correct. And then it, Correct. from what it was from then, it just became, it took a little bit of life of its own after it's sort of working and you already had these embedded customers, right? You kind of already had them and, and, and sort of just I said, okay, let's productize it rather than being an internal tool. You know, we can extend it to, to other brands that, that want to do this and then scale up the idea of planting trees going back to the verification of it, I, I know it's difficult. I've been talking to a lot of people in this space and, you know, just as it's really difficult to measure these carbon, you know, emissions and all these other stuff where we're talking about transparency and measuring things, how do you actually, you know, measure the, tr like the planning of the tree and verify it. Right. I know it's done on sort of done on blockchain, but there's still some steps that are done to even put it on chain. I know it's probably a boring topic to talk about, but like how, <laughs> how does it, like, what's the life cycle of getting verified and then giving it on chain? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's so it, it's, it's definitely pretty involved, but, and, and I think I would just caveat all this with saying it's still like, just like we talked about with other technologies, we're still improving and evolving and it's not necessarily where we want yep. it to be yet. Yep. Um, but, but at its core, what we've tried to solve for with Bear Tree is ground truth. Because to us, there's there's really two elements of it, what we kind of consider 360 degree monitoring for reforestation projects. And to us, the very the first five years are largely ground truth because satellite imagery, geospatial, things like that, like really don't aren't equipped to kind of monitor and verify when the planting is in its infancy like that. So really from years five to 10, it becomes sort of a, a split of geospatial and ground truth. And then onwards, it, it's largely geospatial. You can use 
you know, LIDAR, satellite imagery, things like that to, to continue to monitor these projects. And the interesting thing is if, if you take this, call it 25-year lifespan of a re- restoration project, um, just to kind of keep it at least somewhat sort of bookended, you kind of take this carbon sequestration curve and you say, okay, it's relatively low for the first five to seven years, and then it really ramps up thereafter. And then it likely, you know, depending on the type of tree planting too, this is more, call it like mangroves than say dry wood or hardwood or, you know, call it like spruce plant tree planting. And then, you know, call it by year 20, it really sort of tops out and then it kind of flatlines. And and so naturally the, the area that we've invested a lot of our technologies in this geospatial space, which is really largely focused on when that carbon is actually being sucked out of the air. But if you, again, overlay that chart with this idea of, okay, what is the effort that is being put into these projects? And not just the effort, but the impact that that effort will have on the future carbon sequestration. It's the inverse. It's the flip of that. It's very high in the first five years, and then it starts to fall down throughout. And then largely, once you get to years 10 onwards, it's largely monitoring that can be done via remote sensing technology. And and so our approach has always been, because frankly, over these last decades, we've worked with so many amazing partners, and we've been on the ground, and we've really like you know, been in the mud with them is to solve for the ground truth component, because that was the area that that was receiving, frankly, a lack of investment. And it's also trying to solve a lot of the hard problems uh, that, that like, you know, you need different technology, like getting out in the field, gathering data. And right. There's so, still a huge human component to it. You know, all this technology well, still needs a human component. <laughs> it's exactly it. And so, so for us, it's been about creating what we sort of consider the operating system for that. Mm, so yeah. we, we created a full collection of uh, a toolkit of products that are used to collect data directly from the field. And then we built in API integrations into, into a ton of other sort of inputs, whether it be different sort of underwater monitoring for some of our kelp planting projects, or it be, you know, other data collection devices. And, we collect all that data and it sort of comes in through this funnel of, of all these different inputs. And then really it's, it's about putting it through what we kind of consider this Veritree operating system, which is able to attach those pieces of evidence to the planting project. So, you know, a KML file that gets uploaded around the planting project, and then any evidence, whether it be survivability, planting report, photo evidence, um, socioeconomic forms, you know, different acoustic sensors and monitoring and things like that, and attaching it to the sort of the, the planting report to say, here's how many trees were planted. Is this deemed to be a level of verifiability that we that we believe? And let's say it's, you know, we got a planting report that said 20,000 trees were planted this day. The idea would be that collectively with the with the packaged up with the evidence of photos and you know other monitoring APIs that we've built that we would then be able to put it through the verification workflow to say it's been signed off on by multiple parties both on the ground at the call it head office level and then at the veritry level so it basically runs through this this process of packaging up evidence attaching that evidence to you know as much as close to real time planting updates as we can get making sure that that 
runs through sort of our programmatic uh, algorithms to make sure that there's no like big red flags. You know, it's it's a polygon that should hold a million trees and somebody did fat fingers and inputted, right. you know, right. too many. Yep. And being able to identify inconsistencies and then it goes through the necessary verification steps before those trees get, you know, ultimately approved and to your point uh, are are then at the point where they could be submitted to chain. It's so, almost this like digital supply chain, just like Tentry has sort of this physical supply chain. It sort of goes through the same, you know, you have to get the materials, you have to make the clothing, you have to ship the clothing, you have to, you know, there's these processes in a supply chain for for the apparel. And now there's also this process in the, you know, the, this sort of digital, you know, verification of trees goes through this similar process of, of being a supply chain of processes that happen before it's you know verified or for tentry before it lands at a person's house you know for them to wear that's it <laughs> i mean it, it's all about workflows right yeah and i think the reality is is that there's there's a lot of people that are trying to create very prescriptive approaches to this too that hasn't really been our approach we've created again our own collection toolkits our own monitoring uh sort of form submission software that you know can be submit submit forms directly into our system and we've deployed hundreds of devices into the field to collect this data but at the same time we recognize that some some planting organizations have their own devices already up and running they have their own ways of collecting data so really for us it's also been about creating the core endpoints where we can collect that data other groups can submit it and we can also run it through this workflow to make sure okay we it maybe wasn't submitted through the veritree collection device but it was submitted through a device that we that we have confidence in and it meets certain criteria and we're able to sort of agree that this is verifiable in some way and so we also are our head of sustainability she actually came to us from the world resource institute and she was one of the the lead authors of the road to restoration which was really a, a massive document around how do you actually measure the impact of reforestation? And so for us, it's about taking this like, you know, this giant thousands and thousands of potential inputs and really pulling it down into the core tenants of what make a sustainable restoration project, making sure that we understand, okay, if there's 10 of those core tenants, are we comfortable with a project? Because a project won't meet all of them, but what are the three or four that they are submitting reports against what are the key identifiers and and things that are being reported on to support those core tenants and what is the sort of way that that data is being submitted whether it's satellite imagery whether it's our own de- collection devices whether it's others that sort of thing so it's really about creating a, an operating system today as well and this kind of is so what i believe is so important is 5 years from now we're going to we're going to have invested hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, probably billions of dollars into reforestation. It's yep. going to be huge. Yep. And and if we, we wait till five, six, seven years from now, and we look back at all the satellite imagery and we say, oh, you know, looks like very little <laughs> of the intended impact actually happened. That's going to be a problem and yep. is actually a very real possibility if we don't do the right things now at the ground level. And then as well, also be able to make better decisions faster because we have a data-driven approach from the ground to what makes a good restoration project. 
there's so many follow-ups I'd like to come on this this with, but I, I want to be sensitive to your time and, and I want to get, maybe we can have another episode dedicated to reforestation and technology and carbon markets and this new sort of financial market that is essentially brewing under our feet right now, which can be immensely powerful to the planet in a positive way, but you know, could also, like you said, go down a path that you know some of us don't want to go down because you know, that's what happens when, when money gets involved with things, right. When there's, there's sort of, you know, markets involved, there's some, there's volatility and there's, there's players on both sides, some good and some bad. Right. So, so maybe we'll set another time for a whole conversation around that. Yeah. Um, and but, and uh, we yeah, should just be clear too. Like I, we know that there are our need for verifiable yep. offsetting Huge. is, is, is going to be enormous. And Huge. we also know that nature-based solutions must be yeah, like anywhere from a quarter to a third of our global offsetting needs. And in addition to that, there's also the UN has re- released reports that say we're, we need financing for conservation and restoration to exceed half a trillion dollars a year mm-hmm. by 2050. And so we know the money is coming. We know we need the systems today to get there. And there are incredible groups doing amazing work out there. I think the yep. challenge that we see right now, though, is that there's there's very little consistency in how we collect that data today. And so that five years from now, when we try to look back at like the work we've done and you know, what was the impact? It could be that, that, that we look back and say, this impact is fantastic, mm-hmm. but you're still going to end up with all these disparate ways of measuring and monitoring and, and frankly, very little ability to say, okay, we've got the secret sauce. We mm-hmm. now know how, and, and it's an oversimplification because there's different projects, different regions, but there is no secret sauce, but we need, we need to be able to understand what are the core drivers of sustainable long-term effective restoration projects. And so to us, it really comes down to today approaching these uh, these projects with a data-driven approach. I want to end on two questions here. First would be around what are the goals like for Tentry, right? Is it a billion trees, right? When you when you look at, you know, whether it's your your annual meeting, monthly, quarterly, however, when you'll sit down and, and kind of talk about whether it's goals, metrics, do you look at how many trees we planted this quarter as the barometer of growth, or is it is it like a traditional business, right? Where you look at you know sales, and then obviously that equals trees planted. But then you can also look at trees planted, and you know that that equals X amount of of sales or revenue, right? Like how do you how do you look at goals for for ten tree as far as it's sort of it's impacted because it's so related to to sales and revenue. Mm. is the goal like a billion, right? A billion trees. It doesn't seem insurmountable at this point, you know, at a hundred million, I guess, what are the goals for 10 tree when we look at maybe the next 10 years, let's keep it all 10 related right now. <laughs> yeah. It, it has been, and it, you know, ultimately continues to be to plant a billion trees. You, you mm-hmm. hit the nail on the head. And then when we talk about sales targets internally, even when we give our sales reps, sales targets. We give them planting targets. And, you know, obviously to your point, you can, you can say, okay, based on an average unit retail, that's X amount of revenue and all that sort of thing. So, so ultimately at the end of the day, we still do need to run it like a business. We Mm -hmm. need revenue targets. We need profitability and margin targets, all that sort of stuff. But what we talk about internally is planting. And, and what I would say is, is, Sometimes we regret this oversimplification that we've created of just a tree or 10 trees, because 
truly when it, it, at the end of this year, we're going to do a big look back of like all that we've learned through a hundred million trees being planted. And I think if there is one thing we've learned, it's that this idea of equating a single tree to something, it, it's incredibly powerful because of its symbolism and, and, you know, the emotional connection it can create, but it also is an oversimplification of all the impact, all the effort, everything that needs to go into it. So I think when we look at the next 10 years, it's not just about getting a billion sticks in the ground. It's about making sure that we get, we, we have that impact through verifiable, auditable, transparent restoration that is actually going to have the intended long-term impact, not just the marketing story. Right. Right. The last question I'll end on here is, you know, you've kind of built a lot of really impactful things, you know, you took the, you took the road of kind of, you know, bootstrapping in a way and kind of, kind of building it with you and your, and your team. And then, you know, realized another, you know, pain point within your own business and created another business off of that. What is just some of some, maybe some advice that you would give maybe current entrepreneurs now or aspiring ones com- coming into their entrepreneurial journey of how to start to, to build something right. And, and don't maybe overthink it, just kind of do it, you know, <laughs> move fast and break things or, you know, really sit down and think about, you know, what do you want to build for a decade? That's how I was trying to look at things. And do you want to build something to get acquired in three years? Or do you want to build something that is, you're going to spend a decade in your life on 15 years, 20 years of your life. Those are two very different, you know, mindsets and companies you'll probably build if you look at it from those two different dynamics, but what's some of the advice would you give to, to those two sets? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can't, I can't speak to the model of, you know, build it to sell it sort of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, sometimes, you know, it would have been a lot easier journey if that was maybe the approach. Um, <laughs> but, in, and there's, there's no negative reflection of that. I mean, it's just not what, what we've approached. I think we've approached Tendry. And as a result, bear tree and likely whatever we do in the future is mm-hmm. in addition to that, from the standpoint of really wh- what what do we want to build and what impact do we want that to have on the planet? And then really for us, it's, it's been about putting our heads down, having conviction about that future and working to solve problems that are going to get in the way of us getting there. I think when you look at Tentry, to us, Tentry is as much an amazing business is it is a reflection of what we believe the future of business will be, which to us is, you know, this idea of a restorative business model, a sustainable business model, both from a profitability standpoint and a business model standpoint, but not just in the sense of doing less bad, which I think the vast majority of sustainability is, but actually using business as a vehicle for good. And when we look at Veritree, you know, we recognize that the future of reforestation needs to be data-driven. And we recognize that business has to play a huge role in, in our transition from a climate standpoint. And so for us, Veritree is about, you know, also taking everything we've learned at Tentree, packaging it up and creating thousands and thousands of Tentrees and supporting other businesses and doing things similar to what we've yeah. done over the last decade. So I think it's a long-winded answer, but my, my belief is we're also in a unique moment in time where I think founders have an opportunity to put their heads down and build for the next 18 months because the world is going to be very rocky. And coming out of that, I think there's going to be a huge opportunity for people that took this moment to really reflect, build businesses and business models that truly solve a problem 
that they believe is going with conviction needs to be solved in order to get to where we need to be in 30 years. Coming out of this next period of whether it's recession or whatever you want to call it, we will have huge opportunity mm-hmm. for acceleration of these new business models. And I just think there's such an incredible opportunity for new founders. So to me, it's, it's put your head down, build. Don't, don't look at all the fancy, exciting press releases that are happening yeah. because 90% of them are bullshit yeah. and, yeah. and are self-serving. And actually the people that are doing those press releases are putting them out large, oftentimes because they're not doing anything else actually interesting. <laughs> and frankly, I sometimes look at our own press releases and think that too. Um, and uh, put your head down, build and have conviction about what you what you think the problems we need to solve are to get to where we need to be in the next 20 or 30 years. Amazing. I'm trying to make this a new press release. I'm trying to get all people to ban press releases and, and, and have I know. media I mean, it, be, the, be yeah. the press release medium. <laughs> I, I joke because press releases are obviously an important component of like, you know, getting media and news yeah. out there, but yeah. um, I've always had a bit of a, a sore spot for them. I've, I've you know, especially just in the D to C space, there's been so many venture backed groups that yeah. announce these huge fundraisers only to, you know, kind of basically say, thanks for the 20 million. We just sold a quarter of our company and now we're going to give it to Facebook. Yep. And, and I just think that some of those models are evolving and they need to. But yep. it's, a, it's a function of a lot of other things. Well, thank you so much, my man. I really appreciate you taking the time. I've definitely admired you and what the team has been building from afar for a while. So glad we could finally sit down and do this in, in, in sort of a proper way. Uh, obviously, I mean, really would love to have you on again to kind of talk about a lot of other things going on in, in the global reforestation space and nature markets, which soon to be like there's there's so many different cool things going on that have a potential to really kind of make this, you know, business as a force, you know, to do good rather than do do less bad. I do think we're, we're at this point where it's possible. And if we get the right people building in it, I think it does have, it does have the potential to really kind of, you know, solve a lot of these issues, you know, that we, that we sort of face right now. So, you know, a little bit, a little bit optimistic, <laughs> uh, but we'd love to have you back on one day, Matt. Keep up the great work and best, best of luck for the next 10 years. Appreciate that, Grant. Thanks for having me. 